I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. In this episode, I read chapter four of my book, How to Plant and Grow a Church. This chapter explains how to plant a church bivocationally or self-supported. If you've ever considered leading a church while still working a secular job, or if COVID has led you to a more remote part of the world, you need to listen to this chapter. As more and more disciples live the life of a digital nomad, the opportunity to spread the gospel only grows. God might be calling you to plant a church where you are right now. Find out how to do it. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference in Dallas, Texas, November 30th of this year. It's going to be an amazing time. Registration will open soon, and I look forward to having you there. You're going to grow. You're going to learn. You're going to make friends. You're going to get inspired. Make sure you make the time and set aside the money to come to the CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference this November in Dallas. Chapter 4, How to Plant a Church Bivocationally or Self-Supported The Assistant Bible Talk Leader Who Started a Church on His Own My wife Pam and I spent 10 years from 1993 to 2003 in Japan doing missionary work. During that time, American military men and women would contact us on their way to the many duty stations located from northern Japan to Okinawa in the south. They would often ask if there was a church near their assigned base, and if not, they would ask for support during their tour tour of duty. On one of these occasions, a young airman named Wayne Kishbaugh let me know he was coming through Tokyo on his way to his duty station at Misawa Air Force Base at the very top of the main island of Honshu in Japan. When I met with Wayne, his passion was palpable. He was a six-month-old Christian. He was going to an airbase where a family of churches had no congregations. I advised him to have quiet times, visit Tokyo as much as possible for spiritual strengthening, and to, quote-unquote, hang in there, until he could go back to the U.S. and be part of a larger congregation. Wayne blew past my well-intended advice and blurted out, I'm going to start a church. I'm going to preach the word. I thought to myself, This guy's going to be lucky to come back in one piece spiritually, let alone start a church. However, I tried to mask my disbelief and seasoned cynicism and gave him a pat on the back and said, good for you, good luck. He flew off to Misawa, and I got a call a few months later. Hey, this is Wayne. Wayne from Misawa, remember me? I said yes and asked how it was going up there. He replied, I reached out to someone in the mess hall and studied the Bible with him, and I need you to count the cost with him. A little while after this man got baptized, I got another call from Wayne. He said, I converted my roommate, Corey. I was shocked and surprised and said, great job. A few more months passed and I got another call. Guess what? What? I asked. 
My roommate and I studied the Bible with his Japanese girlfriend, Yuko, and she got baptized. All I said was, wow. Another month passed. Hey, Rob, a Christian couple just moved into Misawa. Now we have six people. We are meeting weekly for a Bible discussion. After about two years of reports like this, Wayne invited me to Misawa to visit and encourage the group. Pam and I flew up. We arrived and spent the night at the on-base hotel. On Sunday morning, Wayne picked us up and took us to church. I imagined we'd be meeting a motley crew of Christians in someone's home. Instead, Wayne took us to an actual church building. A crowd of around 30 adults plus many kids greeted us. In less than two years, that baby Christian had started with nothing but a burning motivation and had built a church of 20 members meeting in a rented church building. I was humbled and ashamed at my lack of faith in the power of God. Wayne's example opened my eyes to what God could do through devoted people. The woman who planted a church in her living room with only a tape recorder. Around the same time as the Misawa story, one of my Bible discussion leaders in Tokyo got a phone call from a woman named Pamela Johnson. She lived in the far south of Japan on the island of Okinawa. Her husband had stopped going to church, and so she was calling to see if we could mail her sermon cassette tapes so that she could listen to them at home. We were happy to help her since there was no affiliated church near her base. Little did we know that Pam was not content to listen to those tapes on her own. She began to invite her friends and neighbors over. She would start church with a prayer and plus the play button on a portable cassette player recorder. After doing this for a while, a single Christian brother by the name of James Willis transferred to the same base. He joined her to make a church of two members. They continued to invite their friends and started baptizing a few. Within two years, this woman was no longer worshiping in her living room. Instead, she was worshiping with 30 members in a rented church building. The church is still doing well there 20 years later and is led by a full-time minister. I shared about Paul Jacobs on a, on a previous episode. When I came back to the States in 2003, these two amazing people, Wayne and Pam, and the faithful Christians that they had led, had changed my view of what God was able to do. After ministering for a church in Boise, Idaho for about a year, I started dreaming about starting a new church in my hometown of Ashland, Oregon. Although I'd never planted a church without financial support or team support up until that time, I knew I could do it. Why? I'd seen it done by a man and woman who had nothing more than faith, courage, and a portable cassette recorder. I knew that if Wayne and Pamela could plant a church without having had any ministry training, I could certainly do it with my 16 years of ministry training. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I knew it was possible. If you're considering planting a church, I want to encourage you to believe you can do it. It won't be easy. I predict it'll be the most difficult thing you've done up until this point. However, in spite of the obstacles, it will also be the most fun and satisfying effort you've ever made up until this point. Let me offer you some ideas on how to get started. Choosing a name. There's been a trend toward using general names rather than denominational names for church starts. Life Church, Journey, The Bridge, or a few of the countless names meant to connect with seekers and keep the denominational origin of the church obscured. I went through a similar phase and named my church plant the Rogue Valley Church. However, be careful that you aren't choosing a name to sever ties with the traditions and teachings of your church family or denomination. 
If you're ashamed of the church you're a part of, deal with that issue. Don't create a smokescreen by selecting a generic church name. I was baptized into the Churches of Christ in 1986, and in spite of the imperfections of our family of churches, I'm proud of the work we've done in bringing many to Christ. When we moved to Tucson, we named the church the Tucson Church of Christ. Forming a core or team. Once you've decided to plant a church, the next step is to create a team around you. These will be people who share your vision and want to make a difference with your life. These people will be friends that you currently have or may know as acquaintances. They might also be people living in the mission field that you want to plant. Step one is to ask God to lead you to people who share a similar dream. Step two is to start talking about what you'd like to do. God will surface people quickly. Be sensitive to the leadership of your current church. Let them know what your plans are and that you aren't trying to create a church split. They may not be gung-ho about your dream, but there's never a justification for creating ill will in a church if it can be avoided. When my wife and I were planning on starting a new church in Ashland, Oregon in the summer of 2004, I spoke with the leadership of the leadership team of the church. I didn't want to create any bitterness or division by my move, and so I deliberately didn't ask anyone from that church to go with me on the mission team. I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to protect and maintain the relationship that I had with the church in Boise. Two, I didn't know how the planting would go and didn't want to be responsible for anyone else besides my family if the attempt was a complete failure. It was a self-supporting experiment for me, and I had nothing to offer any team member except sacrifice and an uncertain outcome. Thanks to God, the church took root and grew, but I preferred to start with a team of two rather than create division within a church or cause a brother or sister to stumble because of my spiritual experiment. Ideally, you'll do best to start with a team of at least five people. That gives you enough gravity in your group to attract others to your gatherings and offer the promise of a future church. Five is enough for a group discussion and large enough for fellowship and encouragement. Gather as many as you can, but five is a minimum I'd consider starting with. Choosing where to live. If you're moving to a new city or country, you will want to take time to get acclimated to your new environment. It takes about six months to develop an understanding of the area, your patterns for living, and the best place for you to settle down long term. As a result, I'd recommend renting for at least six months before you buy a home. By that time, you'll feel confident that your purchase is the best long-term decision. Not only that, but if it's not going well, you won't be anchored by a premature purchase. You can more easily pull up your stakes and move on. When Pam and I moved to Tucson, we we put an offer on a triplex located near the University of Arizona. It was contingent on our home in Ashland, Oregon, closing escrow successfully. On the day scheduled for a house to close in Ashland, the buyer got cold feet and backed out. They forfeited $5,000 in earnest money, and we were left scrambling to find a place to live. I found a place nearby to rent while I was door knocking for our first service. We lived there for the first six months. By that time, I realized that we wanted to live close to campus, but not that close. We found a house to buy that was in the center of town, 1.5 miles from the university. Looking back, I'm glad things didn't work out as we had planned and that we ended up where we are living now. After six months of renting, we had a clear understanding of the city and the best location for us long term. I would strongly recommend living in the center of the town you're planning on planting. 
I see people increasingly moving to the suburbs for newer homes and comfortable living. I love new construction. However, your home and its location needs to reflect the fact that you are at the core or center of the church's life. During the first two years, your home is the hospitality center, meeting location, office, and counseling location. Nearly everything will happen there. It will assist your church if your home is central, close to campus, easy to find parking, and built for entertaining. Your home is going to see lots of traffic. Choosing the right day job. If you're considering bivocational missionary work, in which you work a job during the weekdays and lead the church at nights and on weekends, pay careful attention to the the type of day job you choose. I would recommend hourly, 9-to-5 work, with as little stress as possible. You'll get more than enough pressure from your ministry work. You don't need it coming both day and night. The ideal job is one in which when you leave for home every night, you don't have to do any additional work. You don't have to think about it after hours. In the summer of 2004, when I was considering resigning from my full-time ministry position in Boise, Idaho to move to Ashland, Oregon to plant a church, the real estate in the market in the U.S. was very strong. Not only that, but my sister, who lived in Ashland, offered to train me in real estate sales. She was, and still is, very successful in that field. I got my real estate license, and for the first couple of years, things went well. I split my commissions with my sister and kept my head above water. One day, my sister told me it would be best if I went off on my own. Full of self-confidence, I agreed and started my own business. Immediately after that, the market collapsed. I was struggling financially, sales dried up, and the country went into the Great Recession. Worry and anxiety about supporting my family and church gripped me. In desperation, we cashed out our retirement savings. I regret doing that now. I was working six and even seven days a week, showing houses on the weekend and holding open houses after preaching Sunday morning. Financial pressure was choking me out. Looking back on this time, I'm grateful I made it, and to my family who helped us to survive through this time. However, I wish I'd chosen a field other than commission sales to support my family. Although it fit my personality and had the promise of high income, the reality was that it limited the amount of time, energy, and mental bandwidth I was able to give to the church. The similarities between sales and making disciples caused them in some ways to compete for resources. During the week, I was trying to create clients and sell houses. At night and on weekends, I was trying to make disciples and persuade people to follow Jesus. Not only that, but when the market began to recover, I was conflicted. I felt like I deserved to be paid back for the sacrifices that I had made. I even considered not doing ministry and simply doing real estate full-time so that, so that I could recover financially. I'd always only dreamed of doing ministry, but greed was at work in me to lead me away from God's calling and toward a profession that, up until that point, I'd only considered a tool to support my family and church. Through the help of people like my mentor, Bruce Williams, I was able to stay on track and regain my footing. I'd recommend avoiding commission sales or high-pressure sales job like multi-level marketing in order to avoid situations like this. Sales jobs are attractive on the surface, but there's a hidden cost for each one that those who are recommending that field are often reluctant to reveal. I experienced that firsthand after I left Oregon for another church planting in Arizona. I was asked to come back and speak for the 10th anniversary of the church in Ashland. While there, I attended a birthday party and ran into a colleague that I'd worked with in real estate. 
We had roughly the same numbers when I had left Oregon, and after exchanging some small talk, I asked how her business was going. I'm now number one in the valley, she said. I've already closed 90 homes so far, and it's only June. At that point, I'd already stopped listening to her because I was busy pulling out my mental calculator and multiplying 90 times times an average closing of $10,000, which would be roughly $900,000 for a half year's work. I came back to the conversation at hand and offered her a high-pitched, that's great, good for you, and shambled off to a corner to recover. I'd seen my alter ego, the life I could have lived, the money I could have made had I stayed in real estate rather than gone back into the professional paid ministry. I called my mentor mentor, and he said, bro, each soul you've saved in Tucson is worth way more than a million dollars. That helped a little, but the power of greed and the desire for money revealed itself that day. Many men stronger than me and called to preach by God have traded their calling for the lure of money. Make sure you keep your priority in front of you at all times. Pray for move-ins. Once you arrive at your mission field, the overwhelming sense of isolation sets in like a penetrating fog. This awareness of your insignificance, separation from old friends, and lack of available resources is a powerful stimulant to prayers of desperation. One of the first things to pray for is strong Christians to move in. Pam and I would take long prayer walks together, begging God to send people to us. Within a few months, we got a call from a minister friend telling us that two couples in his church were interested in moving to our area and joining our fledgling church. We were elated. One of these people was an acquaintance from my college days. We drove to the city where they lived and did our best job of encouraging them to move to our town. They did and provided a huge boost of support and friendship at a critical time. Always ask God and keep your feelers out for move-ins. Beg for baptisms. We had our first baptism in Oregon about four months after our our official start. It was a milestone. We were so thrilled. A co-worker of one of the people who had moved in a couple months earlier had shown interest in God and after studying the gospel for a few weeks wanted to get baptized. We all met by a nearby lake and had a short worship service and picnic and then walked down to the water to baptize him. I can still remember that warm June day. If you come from a larger church, conversions can be taken for granted. After planting a church, I'd be amazed when I would return to worship with my sending church. Three or four people would get baptized at one time, and I'd just watch in awe, praying for the day that would happen in our church. The startup church experience teaches you the immeasurable value of one single soul. After praying, sacrificing, and working hard for so long, when one person responds to the gospel, you truly appreciate the moment. You can understand better what Jesus meant in Luke 15 when he said the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to get the one lost lamb. You know in your gut why the angels in heaven celebrate when a single soul repents. It is a rare and precious gift when you help a person turn towards God. Praying with desperation. This point hardly needs elaboration, but pray as if your church's future depends on it, because it does. You need all the spiritual assistance you can get. Keep in mind all the stories in the Gospels of desperate people throwing up desperate requests and in so doing, gaining the attention and help of Jesus. The two blind men, the bleeding woman, blind Bartimaeus, the paralytic and his four friends all share common qualities of desperation and determination to touch or try to get the attention of Jesus. While others maintain their composure and civility, 
these shouting, blubbering, bleeding fools embarrassed themselves in the eyes of people, but were honored for their faith in the eyes of the only person that mattered, Jesus. Take long walks. Pray continually. Never cease praying. Don't be afraid to repeat your prayers. Pray with your wife, with your team. Pray all night. Spend all night on a mountain in prayer. Trust in God is far superior to any technique written in a book. You need to have a plan and a method, but once you've exhausted all of your carefully laid plans, you'll be left at the feet of God, weeping and begging for help. There is no other way. God's strength is made perfect in the weakness you'll experience in the startup phase. Having a church in your home. One of the many blessings of starting a church is having a real house church. Although many churches offer small group meetings in homes as part of their program, an actual house church is nothing short of remarkable. I can remember when our whole church could gather on our living room couches. The children's ministry met in our garage. My podium was a $25 music stand I bought at a music store. One of the best benefits is that I was never late to service and my commute was less than a minute from my upstairs bedroom to the quote-unquote meeting hall living room. We were lucky enough to have an empty lot next door to our house of facilitated parking. I smile as I think about those humble beginnings. I wouldn't want to return to that situation, but I wouldn't trade those memories for anything. Creating the right atmosphere. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, 42-47 This paragraph forms a template for the kind of atmosphere and culture you're trying to build in your new church meeting at home. The sense of joy, gladness, and sincerity that permeated their homes both strengthened the early disciples and attracted those on the outside to join them. Clean, bright, and nice smelling. How can you make the most of your home? Keep it clean. Don't wait till your house looks like Chip and Joanna worked it over on an episode of Fixer Upper. You're looking for clean and bright with a nice smell. If you have teen boys, make sure their boy smell gets dealt with before people arrive. Bake cookies or cinnamon bread before church. Nothing is quite as welcoming as the smell of fresh baking in your home. Figure out parking. Meet people outside and help them to know where to go. The power of food. I have to be the luckiest man in the world because my wife is one of the best cooks I know and also one of the best hostesses I've ever met. No matter the city or country we lived in, no matter the language that was dominant, Pam was always able to communicate our love for people through the food she offered. Food opens the door to friendship and trust. It's no wonder that Jesus carefully orchestrated the Last Supper. He knew it would be commemorated by Christians every week for 2,000 years after he left the earth. I've heard it said that the way to a person's heart is through his stomach. People can find a high-tech, high-fidelity worship experience by attending your local megachurch. Those churches are professional and excellent in their presentation and every aspect of a worship service. However, the one area that the small church surpasses the large church is in a warm family atmosphere. 
People are looking for genuine, close relationships. As our society becomes more and more reliant on technology as a tool for social connection, the value of an intimate and personal gathering that radiates love is all the more exceptional, exceptional and desirable. That's why I'd recommend having a meal after service for as long as you can. Organize potlucks consistently until the church is around 50 members. At that point, it can be done monthly. Incorporating. Let me tell you about our first church service of the Rogue Valley Church in Ashland, Oregon. I'd called a local lawyer to ask him about incorporation. For a relatively small professional fee, we signed the papers in his office. That gathering consisted of the lawyer, Pam, and me. We signed the papers and discussed how to have board meetings in the future. I was the president of the board and my wife was the vice president. She was also the treasury and the, se- the treasurer and secretary. I left that meeting knowing with confidence that our church plant would be successful because at our very first quote-unquote church meeting, we had two members and one visitor. I'd recommend getting a lawyer to help you incorporate as a 501c3 nonprofit organization, especially if you're living here in the States. They'll issue you a tax identification number so that those who give to your church will be able to write off their donations to the church as tax deductible. Taking care of the money. Make sure that you set a safe but straightforward system for collecting, counting, and depositing money from the very beginning. Nothing can shut you down faster than suspicion about how about money management. After you've incorporated, go to the nearest bank and open an account in the name of the organization. This will be your source for purchases related to the church going forward. If at all possible, have someone other than you as the leader be the signer on the checking account. You want to avoid any appearance of impropriety in the handling of money. The same goes for the counting of the money. Have more than one person collect, count, and sign for the weekly contribution. Take a photo of the collection summary that shows who gave what and how much. The total of the contribution must match what's deposited in the bank that night. This provides a security backup so that no money disappears between the counting and the depositing. Keep in mind that every year, a total of each giver's contribution must be mailed to them for their tax records. Get some help developing a system for handling your money. If you can have your sending church provide accounting and administration, it's well worth any expense it may cost. Finding a place to meet after you've outgrown your home. After meeting in our home in Ashland for about a year, the Sunday attendance had grown from three to nearly 20, including kids. I knew it was time to move into a larger location. I'd driven by an old Baptist church many times and noticed that it seemed to be empty. I knocked on the door, but there was no answer. I was working during the week as a real estate agent, so I knew that I could find the owners by looking it up in the county records. I called the number on the files and found out that the church had been gifted to a Baptist missionary umbrella organization. The former members had dwindled in number as their collective age increased and at some point decided to shut down the congregation. Initially, The holding organization was not interested in renting us the facility, but I kept calling and writing. Finally, they offered to meet me at the building, and after asking me some questions about our church and its doctrine, we signed a rental contract. We met in that building for the six remaining years that we lived in Ashland. On one of our final services there, we packed it out with 150 people. Once you've outgrown your home as a church location, you'll need a next step location. I'd recommend scouting by faith the minute you start planning your church. Trust that God will bless your group to grow and that you'll need a larger location sooner than you think. 
Existing church buildings are great options, like the one I shared about above. They provide an immediate churchy feel and children's ministry classrooms and also usually have a kitchen for meals together. Another good option is schools or libraries. When we moved to Tucson, Arizona, we wanted to find a location close to the University of Arizona. We immediately circled the perimeter of the campus and found a middle school with a multi-purpose room that holds about 300 people. The building is directly across the street from the freshman dorms and the recreation center. And the meeting hall has exposed beam ceilings that gave, gave it a slight church feel. We wanted to make it as easy as possible for students to get to church, and that location provided it. We've had visitors who looked out their window and saw the church lawn signs that we place outside on Sundays, and they decided to come because of that. Keep in mind the cost and size of your location. You want to pay as little as possible, if not free, for your meeting hall. After we'd initially signed the rental contract for our Ashland building, I renegotiated the contract from $1,500 per month to $1,000. I knew the building had not been used and the demand was weak for that type of structure. They agreed, and we had a good relationship going forward. Regarding the size, you want bigger, but not too big. If your location is so cavernous that your tiny flock gets lost in the building, it's too big. You want to hit that sweet spot of not too small or too big. I'd recommend a location that can comfortably seat five times what your current Sunday location, Sunday attendance is. So if you're meeting with 20 on Sunday, you don't want to place any larger than 100 seating capacity. If you can rent your own space, the benefit is that you have it throughout the week and can use it for midweek meetings and other gatherings. Not only that, but you can set it up with your sound equipment and chairs and then just leave it. It saves a lot of trouble compared to a school location that requires you to set up and break down every single week. However, there are some downsides. Shortly after we had moved into our building in Ashland, we went away on a church camping trip to the Oregon coast. When we opened the doors the following week, three inches of water gushed out. The whole building was flooded with water from a broken water pipe in the ceiling. The former members had built the church and there were weaknesses in the plumbing. We had to have Stanley Steamer come out and vacuum out all the water, and then we had to replace all the carpet over the concrete slab floors. Preparing Lessons Imagine being forced to write and then speak a 5-10 to 10 page paper twice a week for 52 weeks a year. That's what you have to look forward to as a church planter. If this is not something you want to do, you might reconsider church planting. What complicates this is that you'll need to write and deliver the sermons while holding down a full-time job. Unlike professional speakers who go on tour and speak the same lesson over and over to different audiences, you'll have to preach a different message every time to the same audience. This constant and never-ending pressure is one of the burdens of self-supporting church leadership. On the flip side of this is that your preaching means life or death for people. If it's compelling and persuasive, Seekers will return to your church and souls will be saved. If it's consistently poor, your members will not want to bring their friends and embarrass themselves by having their friends listen to your lesson. Here's the good news. Since you'll be preaching every week, you have the opportunity to get better and better quickly. View your preaching as a work in progress and try to improve every time. You build mastery through repetition. The ceramics teacher announced on opening day, that he was dividing the class into two groups. All those on the left side of the studio, he said, would be graded solely on the quantity of work they produced, all those on the right solely on its quality. 
His procedure was simple. On the final day of class, he would bring in the bathroom scales and weigh the work of the quantity group. 50 pounds of pots rated an A, 40 pounds pounds of B, and so on. Those being great on quality, however, needed to produce only one pot, albeit a perfect one to get an A. Well, come grading time and a curious fact emerged. The works of highest quality were all produced by the group being graded for quantity. It seems that while the quantity group was busily churning out piles of work and learning from their mistakes, the quality group had sat theorizing about perfection and in the end had little more to show for their efforts than grandiose theories and a pile of dead clay. What's the point of this story? Quantity leads to quality. You will become a better preacher by preaching more often as long as you have the desire to learn, take feedback, and experiment. That's why I'd recommend a mindset called good enough preaching. Simply focus on doing the best you can that week. Don't paralyze yourself by trying to create a preaching masterpiece or a conference-level sermon every Sunday. Try to make it a little bit better than the previous week. In this way, you'll become a lot better. As John Wooden, the famous basketball coach, once said, you have to apply yourself each day to becoming a little better. By applying yourself to the task of becoming a little better each and every day over a period of time, you'll become a lot better. Only then will you be able to approach being the best that you can be. Prepackaged sermons. One thing you can do is repackage and deliver prepackaged lessons. By listening to other preachers, you can borrow their ideas and topics and use them in your church situation. The downside to this is that if you use another person's lessons straight off the shelf, you'll come across as insincere and may miss the mark of what your congregation needs. Good enough preaching. Some preachers spend 40 hours a week preparing their lessons. Some spend 40 minutes. Out of necessity, you will need to become good at writing a quote-unquote good enough sermon in a shorter period. My recommendation is to set a limited time to get your sermon done, perhaps 90 minutes. Decide that it has to be done in that time, and if it's not, you'll have to deliver it with what you have. Parkinson's Law states that your work will fill the time you have allotted for it. If you allow more time for sermon preparation, you'll take more time. If you limit your time, you'll focus and still get it done. Lectionary. One of the biggest challenges is coming up with a fresh idea or topic week after week. After preaching and re-preaching your favorite topics, many more weeks remain that still need to be filled with good lessons. This is where a preaching calendar or lectionary can come in handy. Many Episcopal, Methodist, and Lutheran churches utilize this resource. It's essentially a combination of outstanding passages from the Old and New Testament carefully scheduled out through, throughout three years. You can use as little or as much of the recommended passages as you like. The benefit of this tool is that it ensures that you're providing a broad and varied approach to the scriptures and that you don't have to agonize every week for hours over the simple question, what am I going to preach on this Sunday? I'll use it sometimes, and if something else inspires me, I'll set aside the lectionary for another week. You can find the schedule at the online location noted below. For midweeks, there are many excellent DVD small group series that offer good teaching and discussion questions. These generally are about 20 to 25 minutes long and are high quality, 
If you're worried that the speaker may differ from you in doctrine, preview the DVD. The topics typically focus on areas that can be agreed upon by most Christians, regardless of your particular doctrinal background. Here are just a few of the many excellent DVD programs I've used during our midweek services. 33 for Men, Not a Fan, How to Manage Our Money God's Way. Delivering Lessons I remember the first time that I was asked to speak at a college devotional. I was given five minutes to give it my best. The campus minister and the church leader were both in the audience listening. The next day, I timidly asked the campus minister what the church leader thought of my charge. He answered, He said you need to learn how to preach. That was the inauspicious beginning of my preaching career. No matter where you're at on the spectrum of speaking, whether terrible or terrific, you can and will get better with practice and intentional learning. After that initial embarrassment, I started to listen to sermon tapes of speakers who inspired me and tried imitating their style. I got better over time. The benefit of a startup church is that you get a chance to hone your skills at least every week, if not more often. Don't worry about your initial lessons. Just commit to getting better every time you do it. The more you preach, the better you will get as long as you intend to improve every time. Here are some tips on how to improve. Read books on preaching. Read four books a year on the topic. Videotape your sermons. Review a portion of your messages every week and get rid of bad habits. Record your sermons and listen to them. Listen for vocal tics like, um, you know, like, and other common but annoying habits. Ask for feedback. Ask people to share one thing that you're doing well and one thing you can improve on. That limits the criticism so that you can avoid getting overwhelmed by too much negativity at once. Listen to good preachers. As noted above, imitate their delivery and style. Experiment in your preaching. Don't be afraid to try something. Try something new. Keep it fresh. I once heard a speaker say that he often leaves his audience with something to remind them of his sermon topic. After hearing that, I preached on the Good Samaritan and loving your neighbor as yourself. At the end of the sermon, I challenged people to serve their neighbors by baking them cookies and getting to know them. I then passed out some Nestle's Toll House chocolate chip cookie dough. People were fired up to receive a tool to practice neighborliness. I don't do this every week, but it's fun to keep your audience guessing. Step-by-step plan for sermon preparation. Set a 45-minute timer on your desk. Get an egg timer. Decide that you have to complete your sermon in the next 45 minutes and deliver it no matter what. Identify the needs. This takes about five minutes. Using a clipboard and yellow pad of paper, write at the top, what do people need to hear this week? Think through the people in your small church, both those who are members and those who are visiting or planning to. Write down five answers to the question. For example, one, Bill. He needs faith to believe he can change, become a Christian. Sally, she needs to forgive her husband. Jack, needs to focus, focus more on God's love and sacrifice for him than on what it'll cost him to follow Christ. Jenny, she needs to fear God more than the opinions of others. Her insecurity is paralyzing her. Micah, he's choked out by work and needs to pull some weeds out of his life that block him from seeking God. Next, identify the scriptures. This takes about five minutes. Once this gets on paper, you'll start to see patterns and commonalities that'll point to scriptures. At this point, write down a couple of scripture ideas or stories that remind you of these people's needs. Maybe Micah needs to hear the parable of the sower. 
Maybe Jack and Sally need the story of the unmerciful servant. Maybe Bill and Jenny need teaching on faith like the mustard seed or one of the stories of faith found in Matthew 7 through 9. You don't want to use all of these scriptures, but choose the one that seems to meet the obvious and pressing need. You can never go wrong when you turn people's attention to Jesus, his life, teaching, and crucifixion. Next, create an outline, 30 minutes. First, the working title. Now, don't agonize over this. You can come up with a snazzy title later. Plainly state what you're going to say. For example, focus on God. That's your working title. Then move into the body. Focus on God's power. Then scripture one. Okay, so you've got three points to the body. Focus on God's power. You write a scripture. His ability to change your life. His greatness compared to people. Point number two, focus on God's love. Then you have a second scripture. His love inspires you to sacrifice. His love enables you to forgive. Conclusion. Practical direction. Remove the blinders so you can focus on God. Let go of one thing that's holding you back from focusing on God this week. So you come up with a very simple structure. And I, I know that some people feel it's obligatory to have three points in their sermon, but I like two better because it keeps you from going too long. Next, find illustrations. This takes about five minutes. People remember stories. Take time to come up with two or three stories that illustrate what you're trying to communicate. You'll need at least one for each point and one for the conclusion. The final anecdote is what I call the cushion landing. I got this from a minister I was working for, and every time he finished his sermon, he'd pull out some touching, emotional story that left people crying or grateful or touched in their heart. It was similar to the sensation you feel when you're coming in for landing in an airplane. You might be tense and nervous and gripping the seat, but when the skilled pilot brings a plane in for that cushion landing and you're back on terra firma, a grateful noise of relief and gratitude rises throughout the cabin. Everyone's happy, grateful, and ready to get going. That's the power of good stories. They impact us emotionally and physically and move us to want to do something. Always strive for a cushion landing and stick it every time. You can use personal stories, other people's stories. Ask your wife or friends or your husband for ideas on illustrations. My wife has helped me countless times with stories that were timely and fresh. Articles you've read, quotes from books, online stories. You can go to sermonillustrations.com to get help or other collections of stories and illustrations. Just make sure the story isn't too old or unrelatable. If it doesn't impact you or if it confuses you, don't use it. Then take a break for about 15 minutes. At this point, your egg timer has gone off and you should take a break, walk around, use the restroom or check the score. You've put together the essence of your lesson and you know it will help people. Final preparation, about 45 minutes. Fill out the sermon for about 30 minutes. Type in all the rest of the things you want to say during the lesson. You can preach off the sermon outline if you have to because you know what you want to say, but it'll help sharpen your message if you flesh it out. Next, read your sermon out loud, 15 minutes. Don't skip this step. Reading it aloud will reveal the strengths and weaknesses of your speech. New ideas will pop in your mind and you'll be able to edit it based on your reading. Finally, go to bed and then reread your sermon in the morning as a quiet time. Fresh ideas will come to you by sleeping on it, and you'll be fully prepared and ready to deliver it once you've slept on it, read over it, and prayed over it. Preach the word. Thanks for listening. I'll finish the second half of chapter four on a later episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask your help and support through one of the following. First, hit the subscribe button. 
Secondly, let your friends know about the podcast. And finally, read and review one of my books, How to Plant and Grow a Church, or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find both on Amazon. Because my goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.